the red flag flying here. Socialist Think Tank were really happy to sit down with Charlotte Austin to talk about socialism with a focus on work. What does work mean to socialism? Why is work so important to society? Why is work so undervalued? All the answers are coming up for you right now on Socialist Think Tank. Hello, welcome to Socialist Think Tank. Today we are speaking with Charlotte Austin. Hello, Charlotte. Hiya. How are you? Um, I'm not too bad, thanks, yeah. Um, tired, but raring to go for some good political chat. Oh, why are you so tired? I've just had a really long day at work today. Um, I was in like a, like a six hour long Zoom meeting, so I'm really getting this whole like Zoom fatigue thing and I'm starting to appreciate that now, so. <laughs> <laughs> and here you are on Zoom again, so. On another Zoom, but this yeah. one's a fun Zoom. Oh, um, good. <laughs> a fun Zoom. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for doing this. It really is appreciated. So what we're going to do is the first thing I always ask any of our guests is, um, what is socialism to you? Um, so socialism to me, I guess um, it's about, it's really just about living like a happier and a freer life um, and a life where we all sort of like work together for the common good and do things for the people around us and ourselves not for some sort of like faceless capitalist who's going to like cream off some of our hard work and become ridiculously rich off it um and i think like i, I really believe in socialism as like um enabling us to just sort of be a, a lot healthier happier and more at ease that sounds really lovely. I've heard it's this um, terrible, terrible thing where um, we force everyone into slave labour and things. So that's, uh, you know, I've alleviated some of my anxieties about it. Um, so do you feel that you were always a socialist? Like, have you grown up feeling like you were a socialist? Um, I think it took a while to really kick in uh, to, to place with me. Um, I think I've, I've talked to, to a lot of my friends about this. Um, who are also socialists and like me um come from a working class background you know have some hardships growing up and um i like them kind of internalized a lot of that as kind of like um feeling shame about my working class background that i must be like you know um my family must be in this position because we don't work hard enough and all of that kind of thing but then as i got older and i got a bit wiser and did things like start work for myself and everything, I realised actually um, this isn't because we don't work hard enough or this isn't because of any personal failing. Like there's a, there's a really big structural thing that means that my family hasn't had the same opportunities as everyone else has. So do you, like, did becoming a socialist mean that you changed your values or was it something that you kind of found and said, well, I've always felt like this this fits in with my view of the world, my view of fairness, because you said like you felt almost like the idea that you were ashamed that maybe you weren't working hard enough and, you know, your family weren't working hard enough. You know, that's, that's a really interesting thing. And the idea of someone feeling shame because people are working really hard, but they're not being successful with it. That's a really interesting point. So did you, um, you know, 
did you feel like a sense of, of fairness when you started thinking, seeing the world through the lens of socialism? Um, I think I've definitely become a, a more, a less selfish and more sort of like, um, less judgmental person since I became a socialist and a lot more kind of like open to different people of different backgrounds and, and cultures and stuff. Um, and just a, like a lot more understanding of people's different life experiences. I think like that's one thing that, you know, capitalism does is in its like kind of infinite competition for resources, just put pits us against each other um, and allows us to be exploited like that. So I think it's definitely like made me a more open person. And I think it's just made, made me be a lot easier on myself as well. Like, you know, you know, it doesn't matter that I haven't like achieved this thing by this age or that I don't talk a certain way or that I don't like do this because, you know, like it's not because of personal failings. There's a, there's a, like a great big, you know, system, a structural thing that means that I don't have this privilege. So when I, when I first met you like a few years ago now, I guess it was 2015, I mm -hmm. guess, maybe 2016. Yeah. Um, I think that was something that really, um, it was, it was quite exciting for all of us because in that socialist arena, what it was is we were sitting around in a meeting with, in, at Red Hills, weren't we? And, and you were actually, um, I think you were, you were doing a, you were doing a talk. You were a, a real leading figure in that meeting. I was a teacher um, and you were, a, you were a student from completely different schools. And the idea that you could lead from the front so well as a student, I found that incredibly exciting. How did you, how did you feel at that time? Um, I was very excited with everything that was going on in politics at the time. Um, I think up until then, I just sort of saw politics as, you know, something that was like quite interesting. Like I thought it was interesting the way that all the different parties worked and how some people did this and some people did that. But um, I think, the the Jeremy Corbyn campaign for leadership really sort of put the principles that I was developing into action and I think it wasn't just so exciting that he was somebody like finally talking about you know redistributing wealth and um clamping down on people who like don't pay taxes um people who you know cost the country loads of money in um lost um income and stuff and but also just the fact that he was a bit of an outsider, like somebody who um, seemed to be very different to the, the politicians that I'd grown up knowing and just seemed a lot more honest and like open to engaging with ideas and had always supported people um, who'd been vulnerable over the past, like, you know, um, people, this is quite a random example, but um, the Chagos Islanders who um, is this, basically this island that America has a naval base on and you know the, the people were kind of expelled from there unjustly um and and just you know the, the, that track record I just hadn't seen anything like that in politics before so really like I might have seemed very kind of confident and really like you know um like a leader you said but I think I was just really kind of caught up in the moment um, and that it kind of showed me that anyone could be a leader or anybody could talk about politics, someone like Jeremy Corbyn could. Yeah, I think that was like a, as, it, as, as I said, it was an exciting time and it, everything, was, everything was changing and it did feel like 
in, in meetings like that one and when we were talking around campaigns, it did feel that we were all involved. We could all be leaders. We could all make our contribution and, and be positive. Do you think that's, that's something that comes with socialism? Do you think socialism needs to feel like that, where people feel like they're equal to one another? You know, everyone's opinion's valid. Mm. Um, I think it, it doesn't always work like that in practice. Like, just because someone's a socialist or an organisation calls itself socialist doesn't mean that it's going to, like, empower all of its members. But um, to me, socialism only works when... Um, you know, everyone is given an equal opportunity to contribute and be a leader. Um, and that means that, you know, people from marginalized groups are encouraged to, to come forward and take those places that are, are usually denied to people from marginalized groups. Um, and, and yeah, like, um, I've definitely thought that, you know, there's this whole thing in 2015 where Jeremy Corbyn was going on about kind of gentler politics and he sort of got mocked for that and people would say, oh, where's the kind of gentler politics when he would like say something combative. But, you know, I, I really did feel like that at the time that, um, you know, it was a more kind of less about backroom dealings and people doing each other over. And, it, and in, in 2015, it was more about like just people becoming leaders and, and fight, bringing all this new energized talent into, into politics. I think when um, when you consider all the people who were probably in that room at that time, a lot of people in that room have ended up going on to, to lead in, in different areas. And I think if that was a model of how, how, how things can work, that develop people in such a good way, in such a positive way. And uh, I think that's really where we need to be going as socials to develop people. Um, since since um, that and, and, you know, going through the different campaigns and, it was like the Jeremy Corbyn leadership campaign, and then there was the 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 second Jeremy Corbyn leadership campaign where they where they ran the coup, and obviously the twenty seventeen election, and then the twenty nineteen election, and there was Brexit thrown in there, and all that. It's been like quite tumultuous. There's been all sorts of things. You've kind of went from there, and you you in twenty fifteen you moved on from that, and then you went through did your studies, did your A levels, and then you went to university, didn't you? Mm -hmm. um, did you find that that was a different experience when you went to university and did you continue being involved in politics while you were there? Um, yeah, so I, I took quite an active role in my university labour club. I was co-chair of that. Um, and, you know, the, the 2017 general election happened while I was at university. I remember coming back to back home to Bishop Auckland like a few weeks before my exams to campaign there and like we held on to that seat by 500 votes so I, I felt incredibly like um excited and empowered by that um but student yeah I thought student politics was was interesting because on the one hand um you know it's just a very small cross-section of society who's involved in student politics like young people at university um and I miss the kind of like the influences from say like older people or um you know people in jobs and stuff because to be honest i found it easier to get along with um that like people from you know the diverser backgrounds than just students at university and um you know i went to oxford university um the students there well a lot of them were, were very kind of like 
you know, they'd been to private schools. Um, and there was a really big culture at Oxford of people um, joining all of the political societies. So like, um, I think, I think Ed, Ed Balls is an example of somebody who did that at university. Like, I think I remember reading about that, like they join all the political societies and just kind of see politics as a bit of a fun game where they can like, um, you know, role play things and, um, you know, organize, um, you know, like electing somebody, getting rid of somebody else. Very, you know, the Oxford Union is a big part of that as well. Um, so I found that very alienating and very kind of like um, different to politics back home, where it's a lot of people like talking from their own lived experience and, you know, people like going out there and really like fighting for causes that matter to them. Um, as much as that did happen in the Labour Club at my university, like we did a lot of work in the 2017 election. Um, I just, you know, I think I enjoy politics most when it's speaking to, um, you know, the people, um, the many, I suppose. So when you're at Oxford, it sounds like you had a lot more, um, a lot more diversity in your background, a lot more political experiences from a different range. Did you feel like some people were quite limited in, you mentioned almost that like politics was almost seen as a game by mm. some of them. Do you think that is, do you think that's, an accurate description and do you think that actually when people um, move forward in politics and start having a career in politics and I hate using that word but people some people do have a career in politics rather than a, a calling towards politics do you think that like continues on as they get older that idea that politics is a game and you know we will just say anything and we'll try and win this battle even if it's not really worth winning oh a hundred percent and um i guess it's a pretty obvious example to use but i'll use it anyway um boris johnson he's somebody who was active in the university conservative association became president of the oxford union and like there's all sorts of tales out there of the sort of stuff he did when he was president of the union like the um the maneuvers the like moving people in and out of positions um and also stuff like he wrote all of his essays the night before and he just didn't care at all about his studies because it was the, the, the politics was why he was at university. Like the degree was kind of a bit immaterial. Um, and I guess that's something that stayed true to his political career, the machinations, um, doing things like changing his position on Brexit when it's politically convenient to do so. So like Boris Johnson was, don't let anybody tell you any different, Boris Johnson was a huge Remainer. Um, and only switched to supporting Brexit when it became politically convenient for him. So, um, yeah, I think I think there's a there's a bit of a revolving door in British society between um, elite schools, elite universities, and positions of power. Like, I don't know what the current stats are on the number of people from private or grammar schools in the cabinet, but I think it's like basically all of them. I don't think any of them went to a comp. Um, so yeah, that's a, a stranglehold on, on British political life that we need to break. So to an extent you did break that though, you were you were co-chair of um, Oxford Labour Party, is that, sorry, Oxford Student Labour Party, is it, what was it called? Oxford University Labour Club. Oh, Oxford University, and you were the co-chair of that, and you've, you've come from a working class background, um, the statistics around Oxford University don't suggest that many people from working class backgrounds actually get to go there. So 
how did that feel for you? How did you organize yourself into getting into that position? Was it a difficult thing to do or were you well supported? Obviously you were well supported because you were elected. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like the, the number of working class people at Oxford is less than people actually assume because, you know, they're, they're making quite a lot of the statistics like, oh, we're almost, um, you know, I think it's something like 60-40 with people who went to state schools compared to people who went to private schools. But obviously with the state schools, most of them went to grammars or like from middle class backgrounds. Like um, the statistic that I always used to bring up when I was at university, like um, to kind of demonstrate that access hadn't improved rapidly, was that still only 0.8% of Oxford students had been eligible for free school meals in their lifetime which is like crazy compared to the actual population statistics. Um, so it was a very unfamiliar background for me, um, very unfamiliar territory, Oxford. Um, I think in politics, I spent a lot of time kind of like um, making mistakes. I think I just, I, I genuinely think I just came across as like an angry northerner, um, <laughs> a really angry socialist northerner, um, which isn't actually wrong, but um, <laughs> I think it, it took me a while to like so I didn't I couldn't be bothered um I, I really did like try hard in my degree at uni and stuff and I, I couldn't be bothered with all the kind of like oh you've got to go and talk to the Lib Dems and get them to come along and vote for you and all of that stuff but um I think I managed to get elected just by the determination and people knew that I, I tried very hard for the club and for the party um and I think that 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 goes to show that you know, the culture isn't always all that bad. And you managed to get like a, a few people to come along on, on certain things, didn't you? Did you get a few people down to Oxford University Labour Club? Um, yeah, I think one of my, um, like I, I did a lot of stuff like, um, there's this thing called Ifley Open House in Oxford, um, which is like a, a homelessness shelter, but it was, an empty building owned by Wadham College and they had no plans to use it for a year um, so it was just kind of sat there and I mean some other activists basically occupied it and used it to put up homeless people because otherwise they'd just be on the streets and that building would be empty and the university did agree to let us use the building for that purpose and it was all like safe and legal and that was fantastic and I was really glad that I got the club involved in that um, and then I guess there was just like other things we did, like elections were a pretty constant thing. Um, and also, um, you know, we organised a lot of political education. Um, I got Ian Lavery and Laura Pidcock to um, speak at the club. Um, so a good bit of northern power there. Um, and yeah, um, I'm quite happy with what I did in my time there. It was frustrating in a lot of ways. And in a lot of ways, I felt like I wasn't making much of a difference to the outside world. I was just stuck in this university bubble, but there were like one or two concrete things that I can point to and say, I'm glad I did that. Uh, Ian Lavery, friend of, uh, friend of the channel, and also um, Laura Pickup, I'm sure at some point will become a friend of the channel as well. Um, so <laughs> I'm gonna move on now. Like, um, so you, you went through, you went through university, you did incredibly well to get to Oxford University as a, as a working class person. I know that you got like really outstanding A-levels and, and you, you got a first for your degree, didn't you, from Oxford University? What was your first in? Um, in history. 
in history. So you know your stuff and, and you've come out of there, you've got an Oxford University degree. So obviously that, I think that gives you like sort of the title of king or something, doesn't it, in certain countries. Is that right? You've come out and you've had this like magnificent, easy, easy route. Now you've been through Oxford University as a working class person. Now you're one of the elites. Is that right? Um, I wish it was. <laughs> but um, no, um, it just hasn't really been my experience. Um, I'm not going to kind of complain about things because I've still had a lot of great life chances afforded to me, especially by going to university. Um, but I had to work throughout my time at university, which was um, actually illegal in the Oxford University rules, like you weren't allowed to work. But if you had tutors who could turn a blind eye to it, then that was obviously fine and no one was ever going to report you or anything. Um, so I had that. And then I kind of like, I'm, I was lucky to get a job not long after I left uni. I currently work for the NHS um in admin so that's that's really good um but it's not you know like a lot of a lot of people at oxford bring their connections and networks with them there like from their parents and the people around them in their schools um and they kind of grow on that in oxford and they make more networks and connections and that's how they get really good you know positions of power and influence when they leave the university like really good jobs um that was all kind of off the off the cards for me. I mean, in so many ways, um, I could have like tried to slog it out down the corporate path, but there was no chance of me being able to afford to do an unpaid internship, which like really does kind of rule the jobs market for graduates at the moment. So, um, you know, and just because I've got an Oxford University degree doesn't mean that I don't have to pay rent or anything like that. So, um, you know, it's it's not just a straight like that's the thing about social mobility, um, which is a concept that you know I, I don't really agree with in a lot of ways. Um, I don't think anyone really moves through the class system like in the way that it's described as in, you know, you go to university and then you can suddenly become middle class or or above or whatever, um, because you know privilege, class, it just works in so many different ways. Like you might. You might be really clever you might do really good things but you might not have the parents to financially support you to get that far um like i remember people always bring up Je jeff bezos who's like could end world hunger and still have loads of billions left basically that kind of rich um and he obviously i think oh there you go self-made man he got a huge loan off his parents and loads of financial support so like you know i think it just goes to show that social mobility it's it's not what we should be aiming for it should be we should have a, a system where everyone feels fulfilled not just the few working class people who manage to defy the odds and get ahead so you've just given me like two different ideas for two different uh, <laughs> for two different directions we could go there on a, for a different time for a different podcast um on a kind of the idea of you know that that money that jeff bezos has got you know, that if that money was all in circulation, would actually that be, you know, is he simply almost taxing the rest of the of the economy because, you know, governments put in money and then there's a deficit and does that deficit just end up in his bank account? It's quite an interesting one. And also you're talking about social mobility as well. Um, I always think that 
if if social mobility were true, then if you go to Eton, you would be um, you would there would be a chance that you'd end up working on the bins. Mm. Or if you went to Eton, does, does anyone ever go to Eton and end up working on the bins? I don't know. Maybe they do, but you know, like you know, and and that's not criticizing anyone who works in the bins. They've got some great friends who work on the bins. You know, it's a really big, they, that's a proper job, you know, something we actually all need. If they went on strike, then we're all uh, in a pretty bad position. Um, so speaking of work and that kind of thing, I saw the, the work that people do when, you know, you, you move through the class system and the higher up the class system, obviously, like the idea is you must be doing more important work if you're getting more money. And at the, at the other end, you must be doing less important which really, I don't think anyone's lived experience tells them that because people who work the bins, it's a vastly important job. And people who um, have been, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe their job is to have meetings for a living. They've managed to do that through Zoom and they've been getting a lot of money, but they haven't been putting themselves at any risk whatsoever. And if they didn't do that, maybe none of us would know us. But I want to talk to you about work now. Um, so... What, what role does work play in socialism? Um, so I think under socialism, um, nobody ha first of all, nobody has a pointless job um, because you don't, you know, there's no kind of need to um, make money for the sake of making money. And it's not just going into a, an ever diminishing number of hands. Um, we we work for ourselves and for our communities not for somebody who's getting very rich and very you know living a wonderful life at the expense of us um and you know capitalism creates all sorts of bogus jobs um that don't really need to exist from the people who are like executives to executives and um you know just all the sort of industries that spring up from um you know, for example, if we um, didn't rob the planet of so much of its natural resources, then we wouldn't need so much like money and time and effort, like going into cleaning up oil spills and, and stuff like that. So it's, you know, capitalism just creates work that's not really necessary. Um, also, just like, you know, we live in a, a society that's so driven by consumption. Um, and I feel like, um, not that we don't all love a KFC, but I feel like I'm going to use KFC as an example for this. Like, you know, it's just, um, it's, it's unhealthy food and it's just marketed at us, marketed at us constantly. And, um, you know, it's, there's a whole lifestyle associated with it, much like drinking or smoking, really. Like it's, you know, capitalism sells us this idea that, um, you know, we're going to have loads of beer and have a great time and, not to say that you don't always drink loads and have a good time, but it's just the way that that, that that's messaged at us, which causes people to have like really big like lifestyle problems. And then we wouldn't need to employ so many people to help people with their mental health if they could like, you know, be, be rid of that. And that, you know, that that's just what socialism means to me. Like, um, you know, Marx goes on about alienation. So when you go to work, you spend all day, I don't know, like, um, stocking things in an Amazon warehouse or, um, you know, like delivering food to somebody. Um, at the end of the day, 
what do you have apart from like a small wage that isn't enough to pay you like what have you actually like done for yourself or kept or have any sort of ownership over um because i think like under under capitalism we just have no ownership under our work a lot of the time um we work for somebody else we never see the end product um and i suppose if you go to a socialist system then there's more opportunity to like have socially useful work and that you know that that's how i see work changing under socialism it's really interesting and you've got lived experience of this don't you 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 were a delivery rider is that right you oh yes yeah. a little bit about that um oh, i had a i had a fun few months as a delivery rider in oxford um i got crashed into twice um, <laughs> once is bad but twice you're like am i just cursed or something but um cars pulled out on me twice um and there's no sick pay um so basically if you can't ride because you've been knocked off your bike that's it you lose your income um thankfully i didn't have like a family to support and i didn't do that job full time but if i had you know that would have been it for me i would have been unable to pay my rent possibly and, and all that kind of thing um so um that's like you know delivery is an example of the gig economy where um i didn't have a boss i had an app telling me what to do and i was technically self-employed but you know as i was talking about this idea of alienation i was self-employed but i had no ownership over what i did or couldn't choose to do things differently i was really kind of controlled by um what delivery said i could do and obviously they take a massive cut of of what you do as well um so you know in in the end that that's i really hope that's not the future of employment and trade unions and workers need to come together to combat the the slide to that in the economy because it's just really bad for people trying to have some sort of financial security it, um, it's, it's really interesting that you spoke about the app there because that's a form of automation isn't it and, and automation and and robot technology was always supposed to make our lives easier and we sold this thing like you know our cartoons and and all this futuristic vision that we had maybe 20 years ago um the automation actually seems to be that the almost the, the robots are in charge of what you do because of their capitalist overlords is that, mm. is that a reasonable thing to say um well, on the one hand, I think automation has had some bad effects on our economy and our like autonomy as workers. Um, but I think if automation was done in a way that it didn't just concentrate wealth further in the hands of people who own companies, then it would be a really good thing for us. Like no one, no one really wants to be stood behind a Tesco checkout all day, just doing the same hand movement again and again and scanning and, you know, like work like that. It is just really kind of painful. You know, it's just like mind numbing. Nobody, nobody think wakes up one day and says, I really want to go and like work behind a Tesco checkout as important and valuable as that work is. But so it'd be better to have a machine do it. But when a machine does it, it's not like the Tesco checkout workers, they're like, oh, well, you know, because a machine's freed up all of this time and saved us all this money, you can come in and do like 10 hours a week, but we'll keep you on the same pay because, you know, it's not like we've had to employ any more of you. 
um, the same amount of work's getting done. So, you know, as the same amount of work or more work gets done, the only people who are reaping the rewards from that, are, you know, the owners of Tesco or the owners of Amazon. Um, and because, you know, we don't have a lot of control over the technology, um, we, we don't really have the ability to use automation for good. Um, and, you know, automation, it's safe. It's like, it's good for our health. It can have all of these wonderful benefits like, um, you know, mining's an example, just because it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's probably one a lot of the listeners will, will know about, but like, you know, a lot of the mining that's done in Britain at the moment is by machines. And that's so much better than somebody going six feet underground and, you know, having tar in there and, you know, like cold dust in their lungs um, and, you know, having a really awful working life. Um, but at the end of the day, we just haven't seen any of the profits from that, our communities. Um, so, yeah. It, it's none of the social profit really, is it? It's like, you know, automation should have meant that we were, were working less. And I think it was predicted that we were working, we'd be working 25 hour weeks by now. And instead, like, you know, time at work seems to be going up and up and up. And that seems to be a product of capitalism. And, you know, and earlier on you referenced as well, um, you call them bogus jobs. I think there's a book called Bullshit Jobs, isn't there? Um, yeah. where, where they describe all the, all the jobs that capitalism creates. Um, so with, with everything that we've spoken about so far, um, is there any particular like, demographic of people that would, would suffer more from, like, from capitalism at work or, or would benefit more from socialism at work? Um. I guess like a lot of the um you know the hazards of work or the um the burdens of work fall on people who like um are oppressed in other ways by society. So um a big like group of people who are suffering from the overwork culture is women, um especially mothers, because there's this whole um you know thing that since the 1960s women in britain have dramatically entered the workplace from like nothing to like at the end of the 60s um you know you had a really large number of people having part-time jobs and then um nowadays it's really really difficult to support a family without two wages and to like have kids and um to raise them in any sort of comfort um you need two people working um Whereas before one wage was enough to sustain a family. Um, and, you know, I think a big difference between like liberals and socialists is that a lot of so liberal feminists will say, well, you know, it's all about women being able to do everything all of the time. So we must, it must be our, in our abilities to work 40 hour or plus jobs doing like, I don't know, law or something like professional. That's usually a excludes women but then at the same time having a baby in one arm and like you know um a fulfilling like social life and everything and that that's great if people want to do that and they you know feel like they can do that but for a lot of us it just results in us getting burnt out and tired um and making us kind of you know like bad out all all things rather than just like one um so you know that's that's one way in which um you know, the fact that, say, in Britain, we're working 
much longer hours than any other country in Europe. Um, and that's really contributing to like a bigger burden on women. And then also there's the fact that um, under capitalism um, and especially under like rigid gender roles, a lot of the unpaid work that goes on in society is done by women and a lot of the undervalued work. So, you know, there's um, all the sort of domestic labour that women traditionally do around the home. And I think, you know, as the generations go, go on, um, I think men and women are starting to take on more equal shares of this burden, and, and that's fantastic. But at the same time, burden does still disproportionately fall on women. And it's, you know, it's all the childcare, um, all the sort of like cleaning and cooking, and it doesn't, you don't earn a wage from that. Capitalism doesn't put any value on that. It's just sort of seen as part of the traditional gender roles. Um, and then there's a lot of like traditionally female jobs that just end up getting, even though like the gender pay gap's been eliminated in a lot of like companies, you, you look at that and you think, oh, look, you know, there's, there's not really much of a gap between the pairs of men and women here. Um, it's, it's in the sort of jobs that men and women do, like, women are way more likely to be like cleaners and nurses. Um, and, you know, I think cleaners are like a group of people who we've seen like the enormous social worth during the COVID crisis, like everyone's employing more cleaners and cleaning things more often. And it's like, we can see how that is good for society, regardless of COVID to, you know, keep things clean. Um, and yet it's often underpaid women, you know, working for less than minimum wage who are doing these jobs. Um, and, you know, I think, I think capitalism, I think the difference between socialism and capitalism, the way they value these things is that because you can't really like put a market price on, on like raising a child or whatever, and you can't like sell that and you can't accumulate it to, to sell off, then, you know, you just don't get paid for it. Whereas like the ideal under socialism would be that people would have the time and the money to be able to do these things because we'd spread out the resources a lot more evenly. Yeah, I think it's all about that social value. You know, there's a social value in bringing up a child and bringing up a child to be happy and safe and well and, and, and know how to interact with others. And, and also um, massive solidarity to the cleaners. I, I used to be a cleaner for a little bit. Um, I've done it. It's really, really hard. I did it while I was at university. And uh, it's a it's a really really hard job and an undervalued job and I always find that the cleaners are some of the most um, some of the most down to earth and wise people in a workplace. They know absolutely everything, and they'll tell you exactly what kind of boss is terrible, and uh, exactly what kind of boss is good. And you know, and it's always the ones who speak down to cleaners. That, that you know, um, as a as a trade union rep, if I ever find out that a boss speaks down to cleaners, I was like, your cards, Mark. Doesn't work out very well for me, but you know, your cards, Mark. Um, so, like, Laura's going to hate me for saying this because uh, <laughs> Laura, my wife, is a very, very proud feminist and obviously we're both feminists as well. Um, but it's sometimes, it's sometimes important to say, like, when, when women improve their conditions, you know, it's not just about women when women are treated badly there will be a section of men that are treated badly uh, you know those those people who do take on those roles those stay-at-home dads and and whatever or, or, or single dads and and there'll also be people who like you know 
there'll be male cleaners and it, it would just benefit society so much. Do you have any examples throughout, throughout like history? Cause you're a historian. Do you have any examples throughout history where like, you know, women have done something and then all of a sudden everyone benefited from, from the outcomes of that? Um, I suppose like, definitely like when you look at the sort of trade union rights that have been won, um, a lot of the rights that have been won sort of like because of women and the campaigns that they've led have been really important to everyone. Um, you know, things like a lot of workplaces have flexible working arrangements so that mothers can like drop off their kids at school and and share like the parenting responsibilities with the father like that that really helps both men and women um be around for their children more so that's really fantastic um same with maternity leave like um most societies are bringing in um paternity leave as like a concept now and that was only possible because women won maternity leave um but just in general like i really agree with your point that um you know, societies that treat women better um, and give more value to women um, are just better, fairer societies for men as well. Um, look at the way that like gay men have been persecuted in history. Um, that's all because of this societal idea that femininity is bad and weak and hysterical and all of that stuff. That's just those values being applied to men. Like gender isn't just man and woman and they're separate like men can be described as feminine and women can be described as masculine so i think if you just like get get rid of all of this prejudice around gender and demystify all these things and um you know fight for women to have equal rights to men then it just it makes the whole of society like fairer and more equal i think you're absolutely right then i think that when when women succeed, if, if, if men are feminists and if, and that just means that they believe that men and women are equal, it's not like, it's not this silly thing that people think that, uh, women need to be better than men. They, they don't, that feminism as a, as a whole ideology is men and women are equal. Mm-hmm. And when men and women are equal, then everyone I think benefits, like, you know, everyone apart from perhaps the, Perhaps the people who are trying to pull the levers and the, and the people who are the elites, you know, we need to back one another up. We're all humans and we should all be treated equally. I think that's so important, the point you've made there about, like, you know, how, how important it is that, you know, we make sure that equality is true equality. Um, I want to ask you now, what are your hopes for the future? And what would, what, what would socialism look like in the future? So what would a really good society under socialism look like? That's a nice question. I like being able to talk about like um, the kind of happy future stuff as opposed to like the, the kind of nitty gritty of what we do now. Um, because I think it does like, it helps people get towards that goal and it makes people feel a lot happier. Um, but yeah, I suppose, um, to me a good like the, the perfect socialist future or the one that i want to work towards is one where like no circumstance of your birth should kind of like hold you back from like realizing yourself and what you want to do and you know that could be like if you really wanted to just 
um, raise children and stay at home with them. And um, if you wanted to devote your life to being a mother in that way, then fantastic. You know, there shouldn't be the compulsion for um, you to work in a way that capitalism considers to be, you know, valuable. Your socially useful work as a mother should be enough. Um, and, you know, say like, under socialism, we all kind of work together for um, what we what we need rather than what we told what we're told that we want like you know um, maybe I don't want all of the things that capitalism is marketing at me maybe I don't want the the latest brand of iPhone that's only different because it's like an, an inch thicker or has a like a marginally better camera or anything maybe I want to spend my um, time and my energy working towards something nice from a community like um, you know I, I, I really like gardening I like being out in nature like I want that I consider that to be socially useful work I want to do more of that and less of you know kind of like the day-to-day boringness of consumption and um, you know doing a job that like you know maybe it's not the most socially useful thing in the world um, so yeah, I guess, um, and and what what's crucial to you know having workers like ordinary people who can have a lot more say in their lives in how things are run is saving the planet as well. Like the planet isn't going to be um, well saved, or we're not going to improve our environment without looking at the causes of it, and the causes of it are rooted in just continuous like growth expansion more selling um you know just constantly extracting resources from the earth to make a profit from um so i can see a kind of like cleaner greener happier future under socialism where like you know what you do with your life isn't dictated by the laws of the the market like people say socialism's this system where it takes away your liberties and you know it's the state controlling everything but in reality you know all of the things that i do in my life are dictated by the ideology of the free market and the free of the market the free of the people and companies being able to just and people being able to amass so much wealth by exploiting their workers so i think that's a really restrictive system and i think socialism we would be a lot more free and happy under under it. I don't think I'm ever going to top that. That was absolutely brilliant. Well done. <laughs> that was uh, that was so good. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Um, I really really appreciate, it and I'm sure the the listeners will like, share, and subscribe to the channel because of your brilliant work um, and your brilliant uh, your brilliant interview there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, all right, well, take care and I will see you soon. See you later, everyone. We'll keep the red flag flying.